0: All right, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen uh, here in person as well as uh, on uh, line joining us via Zoom. Before we begin, I would first like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of Australia. The University of Sydney stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And equally, I uh, further acknowledge uh, the traditional owners of the country on which uh, all of our online participants are on and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and future. NATO's Madrid Summit in June brought about the Alliance's long-awaited new strategic concept which delivered an assessment of a much more adversarial international environment and set out a vision for at least the next decade. While the document makes it clear the 30 countries' strong alliance is attuned to the challenges that come outside of its core geographical and functional areas, it is pretty much clear that the alliance will be looking much closer to home given Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the threats to NATO's eastern flank. Yet the fact that the Indo-Pacific as a region received a mention for the very first time in NATO's strategic communication of this type and that Australia implicitly got called upon as a major partner that will be crucial in enacting the alliance's strategic ambitions is something that we shouldn't underestimate. So to discuss the details of NATO's 2022 strategic concept, and its implications for Australia, I am very pleased. Uh, I am able to welcome a stellar panel of experts and practitioners uh, with us here tonight or Uh, this morning, depending on uh, the location you are uh, zooming in from. So let's start from who we have uh, just here in the room. Uh, Ms. Chiara Spencer is the first Assistant Secretary of the International Security Division at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and has just flown in from Canberra. So we are very grateful to Chiara for being here. she is responsible for defense and intelligence policy, cybersecurity, critical technology, counterterrorism, disinformation, people smuggling, and uh, human trafficking at the department. Chiara uh, has uh, extensive experience working across the Australian public service with expertise in national security, law enforcement, transnational crime, and international law. And she's been with DFAT for the past over half a year, as I I heard just in our chat uh, prior to uh, the event. Um, Then online, we have Dr. Benedetta Berti, who is the head of the policy planning unit in the office of the secretary general at uh, NATO uh, in Brussels, joining us from over there, Uh, and it is her team that was basically uh, tasked with uh, uh, devising the the kind of uh, uh, strategic concepts that uh, we saw unveiled at the Madrid Summit. Uh, Dr. Berti is also an associate researcher at the Center for Security, Diplomacy and Strategy at Rie Universitat, Brussels, uh, visiting professor at the College of Europe and a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, a prolific uh, academic writer and a commentator. And again, I'm very thankful for uh, her uh, taking uh, time uh, so early in, in her day to be here with us. And last but not the least, uh, Professor Stefan früling uh, from the Strategic and Defense Studies Center at the Australian National University in Canberra, obviously, but not uh, zooming in from Canberra, zooming in from Kyoto, Japan. So we are doing a bit of this Indo-Pacific link. Um, Professor Furling teaches and researches uh, 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 basically everything that is connected to Australian defense policy, defense planning and strategy nuclear weapons and NATO. He's a former Fulbright Scholar at Georgetown and a NATO Scholar at the NATO Defense College in Rome, where we actually shared the same fellowship, but Stefan was there way, way before me. (laughs) So he can uh, uh, make that uh, sort of claim to fame. Uh, And finally, my name is Goran Agurgic. I'm a senior lecturer at the uh, U.S. Studies Center, uh, which is organizing this event, but also I'm jointly appointed with the Discipline of Government and International Relations here at Sydney University School of Social and Political Sciences, and um, this uh, is basically the last sort of capstone event in a series of events that we've been uh, doing in collaboration with the NATO public diplomacy uh, team for the past year uh, as a way to identify areas of collaboration uh, and, and further sort of deepening of relations between Australia and NATO as they related to uh, the unveiling of the new strategic concept so uh, uh, thank you all for being here and thank you uh, to everyone online as well for joining us Uh, I am very grateful that we have this opportunity to uh, have a bit uh, more of a robust discussion and and with people who are really in the know and who live and breathe different sort of aspects. so Uh, of these uh, relationships and and of the new strategic concept. So um, if uh, uh, all of our panelists don't mind, uh, we will start just by hearing from each of them, uh, just some uh, opening remarks. We might start uh, with uh, Dr. Berti, uh, who will uh, give us uh, that view from from Brussels and then over to Professor Fruling and then, coming back here uh, and and, uh, getting a perspective from DFAT from Ms. Spencer.
1: Great. So I'll 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 take you from there I guess. Good morning uh, from Riga, uh, not quite Brussels, but close enough. Uh, I'm going to to be uh, to be very very quick I hope and uh, try to uh, try to briefly underline why this new strategic concept uh, matters in terms of understanding how the alliance is changing its strategic outlook and how it's preparing itself for what it sees. As an inherently more complex, dangerous, and volatile security environment, uh, just to 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 start, in terms of the the preface, the strategic concept is a good way to understand how NATO is. Thinking strategically, it is in terms of the internal hierarchy of documents the second most important document in NATO's in NATO structure after the North Atlantic Treaty. It is a uh, this is the eighth time uh, since 1949 that the Allies have come together to agree uh, such a strategic uh, document. So in that sense, it is every time this exercise is carried out, it is an important uh, political. Um, chance to foster consensus and to foster cohesion, but it's also a good way to understand how we're changing our strategic thinking. Um, and And in five minutes, I think one of the best ways to understand how far we've come in our analysis of the word and our understanding of what NATO has to do, it's to compare and contrast very quickly the 2010 and the 2022 strategic concept, because I think that's a quick way to see where we were and where we are. So 2010 is the last time the Allies sat together to do this exercise. And the main messages in that concept were, if I were to, to summarize, the Euro-Atlantic area at peace. The, Euro, the European security order is based on stability and cooperation. Of course, we will face threats and challenges to our security, but these are more likely to come from without the area of responsibility rather than from within. And they are likely to come in the form of asymmetric, And conventional threats, terrorism, and we're going to have to do more and more of crisis management operation, at strategic distance, and of course, Afghanistan at the time was the biggest operational uh, engagement of the alliance. That strategic concept reflects a fundamentally post-Cold War vision of the world, if I had to summarize it. Now, fast forward to 2022, uh, this last time that we conducted this exercise, I think you can mind my my assessment is that what we agreed is the first post-Cold War strategic concept in the sense that we deliberately started our security assessment by saying the Euro-Atlantic area is not at peace. That main assumption that underlined our way of thinking for over 30 years is no longer valid. This is, of course, because Russia's brutal uh, and unprovoked war of aggression on Ukraine. It's also because of more of a decade of destabilizing and aggressive behavior by Russia. So, whereas in 2010, we were talking about the desire and the ambition to build a strategic partnership with Russia. In 2022, we are much more realistic, I would say, and cognizant of what the reality is today. And so this is a strategic concept that clearly for the first time since the end of the Cold War identifies uh, the Russian Federation as a threat to allied security and to Euro-Atlantic peace and stability. And on the basis of that assessment, uh, please at the very center of what we need to do, strengthening our deterrence and defense, and boosting our resilience against coercion, subversion, and malign interference, whilst maintaining open channels of communication. But I want to underline we're talking about channels of communications, not dialogue. That's a difference. Um, so that's, that, that's in the background, but I would say that, uh, that stopping at this element, stopping at uh, the Russian war against Ukraine and Russia's destabilizing behavior tells us a good part of the story, but doesn't tell us the whole story. I think what's really emerging from this strategic concept is that we see strategic competition as being one of the defining feature of our security environment. And this is a concept that talks about the fact that today we see assertive authoritarian powers pushing back against the rules-based international order, promoting authoritarian models of governance, uh, seeking to undermine our cohesion societies and democracy through both military and non-military means, including economic coercion, including including energy blackmail, including disinformation. So really using the full spectrum of military and non-military tools. And that's a very different uh, understanding of the security environment of what we had in 2010. This is an environment which we're constantly challenging and contested. And therefore, not just we need to step up our ability to do deterrence and defense, against conventional and non-conventional threats, but we also have to dig in and really step up our work on boosting our own resilience and working with our partners to mitigate our strategic vulnerabilities and to harden our infrastructure, society, and democracies. So that's a completely, I would say, new angle. Uh, In a strategic concept, of course, NATO had been going in that direction for for more than a couple of years now, but I think that's very important that it's now reflected in the NATO strategy. And of course, and I'll close here because I want to stick to the five minutes, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that in the context of understanding strategic competition, this is the first strategic concept that mentions China. And it doesn't just mention China, it talks about the fact that Chinese coercive policy stated Objectives and coercive policies pose a, can pose a cha- challenge our interests our values and our security. It talks about the need of the transatlantic community to come together to tackle the systemic challenges posed by the PRC to your Atlantic security. That is absolutely a I would say a very important development in the way we're talking and thinking about uh, the PRC. In terms of approach, we're talking about increasing our situational awareness. We're talking about boosting our resilience, boosting our preparedness, working more deliberately to defend and protect the rules-based international order, and of course, working more with like-minded partners to do all this. And that will be my last 30 seconds in the sense that of on the basis of this rather grim, the friction of the security environment, characterized by fragility, strategic competition, recurring shocks, the enduring challenge of te- the enduring threat of terrorism, the the, the existential challenge of climate change—all of this is depicted in our strategic concept. And therefore, the focus right now is first, second, and third to boost our deterrence and defense, and to reset ourselves up to do collective defense. Uh, in a way that we hadn't really done for decades, and this is already well on its way. But at the same time, retaining a global understanding of how threats and challenges are connected. And that's where the work with partners, and I'll stop here, comes in. And that's why this is a strategic concept that puts partnerships at the very core of, uh, thinking, of our thinking about how to ensure our security and, and working with our partners to, to support theirs. Um, and, that, and in that context, we talk about working more with like-minded partners who share our values and commitment to the rules-based international order. And of course, in that context, we also talk more about the importance of strengthening our partnerships in the Indo-Pacific, of course, we're thinking about our Indo-Pacific partners, Australia, Japan, uh, New Zealand, Korea, and we can talk more about the fact that I, I believe the relationship between NATO, the partnership with NATO in Australia is really going from strength to strength late, uh, over the past years. Um, and to close, to very close, and I promise, as, as I was already said in your introduction, we're talking more and more about the connections and I think that's really, really important. The fact that the strategic concept, acknowledged Colleges, that security developments in the Indo-Pacific have an impact on euro Atlantic security, I think it's a really good um, step forward and also a way to think about how we can continue to further our partnership. And now i really stopped. Thank you.
0: That was great. Thank you so much. Professor Friveling. Yeah, thank
2: you, and I I think that's a really good set into what I was going to say, because I wanted to focus a bit on those interlinkages between Euro-Atlantic, in particular NATO, like security and policy and what it means for Australia. And I think one one might summarize this as, I mean, NATO is the key to the defense of the free world. Um, Australia is of course not a member of NATO, but it is interested in its growth, development and operations since the protection it affords extends far beyond the geographic um, area covered by its members' nations. Um, but apart from what is at times inaptly called consultation, there's no existing machinery in which the voice of Australia can be heard in the formulation of decisions which directly bear on our destiny. So we in Australia are firmly, firmly support NATO, but it's inevitable that the importance and extensive nature of the, its deliberations and planning will affect not only the interests of its members, but also those of non-members. And it's not unnatural, accordingly, that, that Australia is especially concerned to ensure that its interests and the interests of other areas of the world are not inadvertently overlooked by members of NATO. Now, if some of those terms of phrases kind of strike you as a bit of odd, it's because they're not actually mine, but they're from 1952, a speech that Percy Spender gave um, on, on NATO and Pacific security. So I thought that it's it's quite striking as a passage though, because it highlights that, although we've come to think about our partnership and the relevance of NATO in the context of Af- growing in the context of Afghanistan and NATO out of area, the kind of European deterrent security focused NATO that we're starting to see emerge again, was seen and, and I think was um, during the decades of the Cold War just as relevant for us, even if it didn't may- maybe kind of like um, express itself in quite as as deep a partnership as we see now although although even even many of those inter- exchanges date from a long time ago so where where did these more underlying kind of like relevance of NATO for Australia and um, um, lie, lie? Uh, let's start with the negative I mean NATO is not a global alliance and and I, I think it's important to re- to kind of like not read NATO interests in the indo-pacific as kind of like a rekindling of those um, thought bubbles about a global NATO that we saw kind of like rise in the 2004, 5, 6 kind of like um, time period um, when, when NATO arguably was looking for, for more relevance. Um, so it's important to be precise about what we mean by NATO. It's not, I mean, it's in Australia, that's, that's important. It's Also in, in Europe, it's often a bit um, going all over the place um, NATO as an organization, or do we talk about NATO as the collective of its particular European um, member states? And so I think that NATO as an organization, and we can delve into that, um, we, I think for a whole host, host of this reason, will not become an Indo-Pacific security player, or it's unlikely, but I do think that what we are seeing is that NATO as, as the collective of its European and ca- members in Canada um, do do show and are interested in greater engagement in our region and so I think that the 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 Madrid Summit statement and, and the new strategy concept are kind of like a symptom less symptom more than a cause cause of that. And you can see also see that in for example the European participation in pitch black um, and and on, on also going back to 1999 the very significant European participation in the interfed operation um, um, of how relevant that is and I think our NATO partnership, is an opportunity with the organization is an opportunity in fostering that development so that brings me to the first more enduring point which is that NATO really is a quite unique forum for political strategic exchange and that's really what even Percy Spender back in 1952 was already quite concerned or um, um and focused on um a lot of this is in the NATO summits um, but even more so I think in some ways the at the level of the permanent representatives in the NAC Again this is not really new that this is relevant for us. Um, I mean Japan for example, started engaging with the NAC in '79 in the context of, of the INF INF discussions. But the, the NAC has kind like of reawoken to what it used to be in, in some ways during the Cold War. And, and it has become a really important conduit through which European capitals engage with Indo-Pacific security, which is really important because we've got 30 allies, very few of which have any national kind of like expertise on, on, on our region. Um, so for example, the creation of the Assistant Secretary General for Intelligence and Security uh, was hugely influential here and has really shifted NATO discussions on, on, on China, Indo-Pacific security, a, a huge way within just a few years. Um, Australia is engaging in that on seconded officials, but I think we can do a lot more and, and particularly at the at the ambassadorial level and in, in, in the embassy. So for example, Japan has an ambassador accredited to NATO alone. Uh, Caroline Miller has to cover the EU as well as NATO and, and a few bits and bobs, Belgium and other things. That's a, that's a very big plate. And I think we're a bit underdone there. The second thing that I think is, is worth highlighting is that NATO remains the world's closest and most institutionalized alliance. And I think the Madrid decisions and the, the the um, the, um, new strategy concept reinforced that. Um, We used to be really positively envious about that back in the 50s, Um, perhaps not anymore, but NATO remains the only successful um, model for how do you do multilateral deterrence at an alliance level, um, which is something that we, I think is becoming increasingly important for us in the Indo-Pacific. And so it's not that unusual that people continue to look to NATO as a possible model for the evolution of Indo-Pacific alliances. I mean, that includes even somebody like Kevin Rutt, for example, who last year co-authored a, a report with the Chicago Council on Foreign Affairs, which argued for, for an um, Indo-Pacific nuclear planning group and um, that would involve Australia, as well as Japan, South Korea and the US. Um, I think that fundamentally misunderstands what the nuclear planning group in NATO is actually doing But I think it shows how much what happens in NATO influences the the, the thinking about the future of our own alliances, Um, and perhaps no more so than the era of nuclear sharing. Um, Japan and South Korea, there have been increasing voices for, I mean, quote, NATO-like arrangements on nuclear sharing over the last five and ten years ago, and I think that these are not as easily dismissed in Washington anymore as they were five or ten years ago. Um, So I think it's important to think through what my, my, the consequences of the fact that the NPG and all those kind of like arrangements um, at the moment are getting a fairly good workout and how they will perform in the current crisis, I think, will have lasting consequences for us, just because it will shape the debate and thinking about the future of, 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 of Indo Pacific alliances. And it's, it probably should more than it does in Canberra, but certainly here in Japan, for example, it very much does. And the third role is that NATO has always mattered to us as a developer of interoperability and and capability, and that's really the core strength of NATO in many ways, which we've always imported indirectly through the ABCA technical formats, and we started directly engaging with that in the early 90s, And, and it's this area that's really kind of taken off in the context of the NATO partnership. although. I must also say that, I mean, for NATO, the fact that they opened a lot of these for us to us was politically significant in a way that it never really was for us, which I think has also um, where, where we've kind of like tended to talk past each other um, for a while. Um, but I think, um, again, NATO and Australia are now looking at the same strategic issues um, that, that Benedetta just mentioned. I mean, great power competition and conflict. That's actually quite unusual historically that our interests on the technical level align this much. Uh, You might also add things, emerging things like, for example, climate change, where I think uh, NATO has also launched a number of new initiatives at Madrid summits. I mean, some are a bit more gimmicky than others, but I think there's also some quite fundamental work um, that's being done and that will inform inform, um, future directions there. Um, And and I think that that will certainly remain an important element in which um, NATO, despite its new direction will remain really important. So I think in conclusion, I think the, the idea that we would just maintain a pilot light setting in our engagement with NATO after Afghanistan um, clearly has not come to pass. And I think was kind of somewhat, that suggestion was somewhat historically ill-informed. It does remain relevant for us um, and, and, and for, for much more enduring reasons. And I think that the shrinking of the world in geographic, in terms of travel, zoom, um economic linkages and so on will probably mean that those enduring relevances will will show up as greater levels of activities and partnerships than they may have done in, in Percy Spender's time. Um, but I don't think that the 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 kind of directions that NATO has taken in the NATO summit fundamentally changed that um, um, in in any any kind of way. So I'll just leave it at that.
0: Okay, thank you. And from Percy Spender to Kiara Spencer. <laughs> close, close,
3: but not quite. Uh, look, thank you. And, and my comments probably follow on quite closely with the other panellists. Um, you know, the, there has been a lot of attention played to the fact that NATO mentioned the Indo-Pacific and China for the first time in the st- strategic concept. What has been seen less is the framing of that. It's still very focused on NATO territory but a recognition that the threats are global and interconnected. And so very much, you know, I don't think we're talking about NATO involving itself in the Indo-Pacific, but an indication that it understands that the Indo-Pacific region is affected by the shift in the geopolitical balance, and that has major risks for the NATO region as well as for the rest of the world. And the focus has really been there on boosting shared awareness, enhancing resilience and preparedness, and calling on on NATO partners to support them in that. We have and do still believe that NATO has an important role to play in the political and diplomatic engagement in the Indo-Pacific and we support NATO's allies focus and strategic cooperation in the region. Particularly the strong and consistent NATO messaging against gray zone and hybrid tactics in the Indo-Pacific in the maritime domain, um, the importance of the rule base order and shaping acceptable behavior. behavior, And the other aspect is that there has always been a range of shared security concerns beyond the geostrategic um, issues around cyber disinformation, maritime, um, counterterrorism, climate change, women, peace and security, and crisis prevention and management. So it goes beyond that kind of, you know, NATO's always talked about in terms of military alliance, which is an important part but it is a much broader security focus. Um, in including the Indo-Pacific in the strategic concept, there's been more of a public recognition and a further step in strengthening the relationships that NATO has already got with its AP4 members, with the Asia-Pacific members, so ourselves, Japan, Korea and New Zealand. Um, You know, this came to the fore with the invitation to the AP4 to attend the NATO Leaders Summit. Um, And prior to that, and actually in April, the foreign ministers attended the foreign minister meeting around the invasion of Ukraine. Um, Even before this, the last couple of years, NATO has been strengthening those relationships. We've seen step ups in political dialogue and practical cooperation um, in several areas, particularly in cyberspace, critical technology and countering disinformation. Um, We had the foreign ministers meetings, and Australia as well as our AP4 colleagues quite often participate in the North Atlantic Council meetings to discuss security issues, um, including maritime security and climate change, and they're really seeking our perspective on those issues um, and understanding that the interconnectedness, there's still regional differences and different regional perspectives that they really want to learn from. Those discussions enhance the situational awareness on security developments in both the Euro-Atlantic and Asia-Pacific region um, and really contribute that unique perspective. NATO also has individual partnership cooperation programs with each member of the AP4. Um, For Australia, that includes cooperative activities on um, topics of mutual interest, particularly cyber defence, non-proliferation, civil preparedness and women, peace and security. Um, and there's a lot of practical cooperation that happens under those. I would say, you know, and and, and going to um, my colleague's point, our relationship with NATO is well established, but it continues to evolve. Um, it's moved beyond joint operations, and now we've got structured dialogues and practical cooperation on those shared security challenges. Um, it's based on the values we share, which become more important in this era of competition, but also of our experience of working together, including in Afghanistan, Iraq, in the NATO centers of excellence, NATO headquarters, and most um, recently, as well as part of Operation Sea Guardian 2022. Um, And also on that common vision and shared values and and importance of a rules-based order. Um, And just, um, To the other point around the kind of focus we have on these issues, Um, we have, um, I think mentioned Caroline Miller, who is a force on her own um, in terms of driving Australia's um, work with NATO. Um, We also have a number of senior Australian Defence Force members um, in Brussels working with NATO. And quite apart from that, a whole range of Australian officers embedded in NATO headquarters at the centres of excellence. and briefing at committee meetings and the Atlantic Council. So there is an awful lot of engagement that has happened over time and the interests and the um, focus of that within NATO have shifted but we're definitely seeing an increased demand for our perspective and the perspective of our AP4 colleagues um, of what we're seeing in our region to inform those kind of global and interconnected threats.
0: And I actually wanted to, to uh, kick off some questions by uh, uh, asking you more, as uh, uh, Professor Furling pre- uh, preempted on, on the, the kind of uh, level of engagement, um, you know, that we could parse through uh, the sort of resources that are committed to to that cooperation. So um, as you said, um, we are seeing the relationship evolve. So uh, to to that extent, can we expect that there will be more resources dedicated in fact that, for instance, there is a single ambassador to NATO, for instance, rather than a role that is shared with um, other sort of representations or within the DOD or in general, um, in terms of uh, resourcing in the government? Um, how how um, do you think that might uh, go? Uh, are there signals as to stepping up that ambition?
3: Look, there's definitely increased focus on the NATO relationship. Um, resourcing with government is always a, a difficult question. Um, what I would say though is, as we're seeing with NATO, none of these issues are single issues. The DFAT is a reasonably small agency and very light, and that gives us flexibility and agility, but it means that we don't have strong representation, you, you know, particularly large teams um, on issues. But that is to some degree disguised by the fact that these issues aren't DFATs alone. And the issues that, that um, NATO is focusing across every aspect of Australian government. So it's that united approach and driving on, ex- leaning on experts from every government department, pooling resources so that we can give that focus to the issues and make sure that we have the right people providing the right advice. DFAT can't and shouldn't do everything, um, we're a convening force. Um, And there's a range of specialties and expertise that we provide. Um, But in terms of NATO and the security issues, you need cyber experts, you need climate experts, crisis management. And so people from across the Australian government are involved in that engagement with NATO and DFAT supports that engagement. Um, But even in terms of the centres of excellence, we've got a whole range of Australian officials rotating through those those centres as well. So it's a whole of government effort. and it is, um, we have particularly driven and passionate people involved in it. The question of whether we'll get more passionate people involved um, is a more difficult one, um, but I think it is really leaning on that whole of government that makes a difference.
0: So we'll keep an eye on on that budget in hyperinflationary times, and yeah, hope for the for the best. Okay, uh, we will be diplomatic then uh, about that. Uh, now on that question of, uh, and I, I think that this is a really interesting aspect of um, right-sizing that cooperation. As Ms. Spencer already said, the this sort of idea that uh, NATO is not just about military or security cooperation. Uh, uh, And and, uh, at the same time, as Professor Fuling said, NATO is basically the only sort of successful model of multilateral deterrence that we have out there, right? And and the sort of model that many are pointing to uh, when they uh, uh, call for for similar sort of modes of engagement. Uh, Maybe, uh, Stefan, if uh, you could, uh, offer your perspective on right sizing that cooperation, because I think within the, the sort of scholarship of on NATO, there is always this sort of debate of uh, what NATO should be or shouldn't be focusing on, right? What are those issues? And I, I hope also Dr. Berti can, can uh, fill us in as well from the HQ perspective and some of the discussions there. Um, what are the issues that Australia can meaningfully uh, uh, cooperate on and where uh, some of these things might be uh, better left to other organizations or even for NATO itself, uh, where is it that it could contribute and and uh, of course the, the sort of functional kind of debate is also one that you know is often accompanied then with that sort of geographical sort of focus right um uh where you know where NATO needs to to uh really uh, uh put its put put its focus uh and i think uh, you already alluded to that so your your thoughts and then we might get to dr Berthold.
2: no i think it's a good question i think part of the problem is that we've well part of the problem is that just prioritization i mean um, we're underdone in a lot of areas not just in NATO NATO, also in the Southwest Pacific, Southeast Asia, and so on. And um, if you if you come to prioritization, it's not that surprising that that, that government is kind of like looking quite closely, and that resources are flowing elsewhere. Um, but I think there's also a problem. We've we I think long term struggled to actually really define an objective for our relationship on both sides. I mean, um, and beyond Afghanistan. Um, I mean, on NATO's part, that was partly by design. Um, I think in Canberra we struggled with that as well. Um, and, and, and I think you could see that how NATO responsibility has bounced around, for example, internally in DFAT, you can kind of like see it never really fit quite in, in, in any of the areas that it was um, before I think it ended now in international security. Um, I do think that today, I mean, we want to be, we want to be present at the senior summit dis- discussions, um, um, and I think, and build those links at leadership level. Um, and and I think that we are there. I do think we want to have input and influence on the work, the supporting work on Indo-Pacific issues in particular in NATO headquarters. And I think that w- we've made a lot of progress there in the last few years, in particular through Sikondis. Uh, we want to have access to the technical fora where where we see value. And I think that again, in the in the first few years, there was actually reluctance in Canberra to engage too much because they just saw a huge bureaucracy that would suck up the whole kind of like diplomatic what well, of at core in Europe. And so I think that there's that we're a lot more comfortable and familiar with that now. Um, and we wanna be interoperable militarily and politically also in ter- um, in case of future joint operations. And I think that those are actually the right boxes and the right objectives. And I think we've made a lot of progress towards them. Um, does it mean that we, we should do more. I think. Yeah. I think where there's, there's probably still opportunities that we're not not exhausting. Partly that's because NATO is a hugely complex organisation. Um, there's an awful lot of different parts all over the member states, um, and and for example, the the NATO strategic commands, and and in particular, for example, Allied Command Transformation in North America. Um, when there, I think from Australia, NATO is kind of like associated with Brussels. A lot of NATO stuff happens in the member states and it took us a few years I think to cotton on that if you're the defense kind of like rep in Washington that there's actually a very significant NATO work going on. That just wasn't on really people's radar because NATO was done in Brussels. And so I think that there is a there still is a learning process um, um, that we're discovering parts of NATO that by accident we didn't really encounter. And I think a good example is for example, maritime command. I mean. Nato ran the counter piracy operation for many years in the Indian Ocean, and we never really leveraged that into building a relationship on this. We never participated. We kind of ran things in parallel. I think these days, we probably would be a bit more strategic about that. But overall, I think we're on the right direction. And and a lot of the issues that need to be resolved is partly just building greater familiarity with the organization on both sides.
0: Dr. Berti, your thoughts um, in terms of right-sizing that uh, cooperation um, and the sort of question of functional areas, um, is there any, uh, from the HQ's perspective, a particular um, particular set of areas, or it's uh, really comprehensive, and and uh, obviously uh, recognizing that Australia, along with uh, the other AP four countries, has been in this process of uh, negotiating new uh, sort of partnership agreements as of late. Um, so, if you could speak a bit about that,
1: sure. Um... I would say that the the I would agree with the with the with the assessment that has been made so far in terms of the the trajectory here is an upward one. Uh, the trajectory is one in which the uh, the number of issues that are discussed at both the political level and then then are operationalized through practical cooperation is ex, has been expanding for 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 a few years now. It's not necessarily something that comes just after the strategic concept. We really in. That sense the concept reflects uh, a direction of travel that has been I think ongoing for, for a few years now. I, I would agree that there's been a, a, an evolution of the partnership and uh, that at the beginning of course one of the main focuses was uh, as was mentioned uh, oper- missions and operations and interoperability in that context and that's of course was driven uh, by Afghanistan primarily but since then, we have, I would say, moved forward in, in looking at how to deepen and really expand that uh, cooperation agenda. And uh, it was already mentioned, but I think it, it, wor- it is worth repeating that uh, over the last year, we have had a foreign ministerial meeting with our Indo-Pacific partners invited, and that was followed up by a summit. Uh, that is politically, I think it's a politically quite clear signal of where the alliance sees, uh, of how much the alliance values its partnership in the Indo-Pacific region, and uh, clear, uh, clear signal of the desire to do to do more when it comes to decision shaping and consultations. So I think that is really something that in the day-to-day work of NATO uh, I see happening in terms of having more political consultations with our partners in general and specifically with our. Um, Indo-Pacific partners and Australia, of course. Uh, then one, one, one element that, uh, that I think we should add to that is that we are we are agreeing to do more together. And we are agreeing to do more together, not just because we share the same values and a similar uh, outlook on the strategic environment, but also because I think there is a mutual, and from, from Australia, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe there's a mutual understanding that we are faced with, Uh, systemic challenges, global challenges that do really require Uh, like-minded partners to come together regardless of geographical boundaries exactly as we said before that doesn't necessarily mean a military presence in the Indo-Pacific that's not what this is about but it is about sharing information it is about exchanging best practices this is about training building mutual capacity on issues from cyber defense to emerging uh, emerging new and disruptive technologies to countering disinformation to tackling the challenge of Climate change; these are all issues that we're all tackling at the same time, and where we have, uh, I think, we can bring value, both sides can bring real value to the discussion. So I think it's uh, it's very much the direction, the direction of travel that I see. And of course, I would also add to the table resilience. We're doing more and more on resilience as allies. Uh, this is an uh, this is an area where we can exchange ideas and exchange best practices and also learn from partners. I think when it comes to resilience and countering this malign interference and dealing with. Uh, uh, identifying and mitigating strategic vulnerabilities, I believe Australia, for example, would be uh, would be able to 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 teach us a thing or two. So there's a number of areas where I think we can we we will continue to cooperate, and I see that as uh, um, a trend that is going to be intensified.
0: That's great, and and uh, I might still uh, put you on on the spotlight while uh, we we have you on a roll here uh, because a couple of times now we've mentioned the Asia Pacific or the Indo Pacific partners. We still talk about the AP4 unless I've, I've missed on on a memo, but it is the region is Indo Pacific, so uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, reconciling be- between the two. Um, my question uh, um, from for for the sort of Brussels view of, of, of things or Riga view of things at the moment, if you're there, um, so uh, putting Estonia on on uh, a spotlight there, uh, or Latvia, that is, uh, sorry about that, missing my politics, um, but um, the the sort of question of um, dealing with the partners rather than a partner in this region, right? That uh, there has been a sense that from uh, NATO's perspective, as, as seen also at the Madrid summit, right? The the photo is uh, with the Secretary General and the four uh, prime ministers um, of the Asia Pacific Four, which are Australia, New Zealand, uh, Republic of Korea, and, and Japan. Um, is, is there a preference to basically deal uh, with these countries as a grouping rather than uh, on an individual basis? Um, or are we just m- maybe reading too much into that? Um, and I, I note this because we are at the US Study Center as well here. And I, I think that there has been this sort of trend that we have noticed at least a move away from the sort of um, hub and spokes model for US alliances and more towards something that looks like greater sort of cooperation among the uh, Asia Pacific allies of the United States precisely to to kind of make them more interoperable right to build those capacities to share knowledge to to uh, build resilience all of those things that dr Bertie has has said so uh that was a very long question but basically uh does Brussels does does HQ have a preference um in terms of dealing uh, with the the region uh, would that be more bilateral or minilateral
1: uh, it's a very good question, and I would uh, I, I would pick up on your point. Don't let's not read too much, or let's not uh, let's not take the strategic concept uh, necessarily as an indication that there is a desire to uh, put less focus on the bilateral relations. Because of course, each and every partner has its own uh, relationship with NATO when it comes to the cooperation agenda, and that's tailored to both our our needs and the partners needs that I don't think that's going anywhere and of course even in a region like Indo-Pacific we know that different our different partners have different level of expectations and with respect to how to interact with NATO so that's remains I think very important um, and I don't believe that there is a desire to uh, move from to shift completely from looking at bilateral to looking only through a regional focus. I, I also don't think that would necessarily be functional in this security environment. Again, many of the challenges we face are uh, really global and we can build a cooperation and share knowledge by working with countries in different parts of the world on issues like cybersecurity, on issue like countering hybrid threats, disinformation, perhaps we can think functionally rather than regionally, just throwing it out there. But I think the point of the strategic concept, and I think that's why you don't see a list of individual partners, is we're trying to look at the longer term. We're trying to look at the strategic direction, and we're indicating what are some regions in the world that are either of strategic importance to the alliance, like it says in the concept for the Western Balkans and the Black Sea region, uh, directly relevant to your Atlantic security, like we say for the Indo-Pacific, connected to stability of the Euro-Atlantic area, like we say for the Middle East and the Sahel and our Eastern neighborhood. So we're looking really at what is the global picture and what are the relationship with different regions? And I think that's that's the right level of strategic thinking for that kind of document. Uh, that doesn't necessarily means that we are shifting a policy and we are abandoning a tailored approach. I think that would not be uh, that would not be a suitable way forward. Especially as I said, different partners do ha- bring different needs and different skills to the table, and they have different expectations from NATO and vice versa. So there will always be a level of uh, tailored bilateral cooperation. But at the same time, we know that for certain topics and for certain conversation, it is, those are germane to be, those are germane to be had in a broader format. So I think keeping, and I I think the strategic context tries to say as much that we will uh, keep a level of flexibility, uh, to be able to be effective in this changing geopolitical environment, so I think that's the that, that should be the the um, the driving principle rather than confine us one way or another.
0: Understood. View from Canberra on, on this front.
3: Look, I I would agree with that entirely. There is um we have very strong bilateral engagements with NATO, but there is also benefit in the A P Four grouping, um, and we work very collaboratively with our A Four partners outside of the the NATO context as well. It's useful to have those discussions and then be able to go back and and bring a broader view. So yeah. it's not just an Australian position on nothing. There's a broader grouping within the Asia Pacific region um, that share a similar view and have um, common challenges um, in a whole range of international security issues. So I think there's benefit in both. We, we would be concerned, um, as has just been said about moving away from the kind of tailored approach but having that flexibility to be able to work with partners in the region and and bring a a diverse view um, and work collaboratively within that diversity.
0: Great and before we open up the floor for questions I had one sort of final question which deals with the sort of institutional balance of power or to put it very plainly what to do in a 30 member state alliance uh, when uh, you have countries that have a lot of interest in ooh, <laughs> a lot of interest in in the indo-pacific and some that are saying hey there's a fire in our backyard we can't be possibly looking uh, so far um, to, to us yes China might be a sort of challenge but it's not imminent it's not Anything that uh, really we we care about, uh, given everything that has happened from February twenty fourth onwards, or arguably, you know, everything that has been happening uh, since since uh, at least eight nine years ago. Um, so uh, I'll open uh, with with uh, Professor Fruling, uh, who might maybe shed some light uh, on the fact that, and we we don't necessarily need to talk about the United States here. I think that's pretty resolved. The U.S. has a very clear Indo-Pacific orientation we've had the new national security strategy published just a week ago right it's very clear um, as to uh, what it sees it's its main uh challenge moving forward um very clear in decoupling uh China and Russia even though it sees that that sort of Anton between the two is a particular uh a problem but certainly uh a signaling that Indo-Pacific is the the key theater of interest for United States. But then on the European NATO side, um, the the kind of divisions uh, that there are between the likes of, say, you know, France, as as, uh, it sees itself as a a sort of resident power in the region. And obviously, you know, we could talk about then some of the the kind of countries uh, in in the region where Dr. Berti uh, is currently, uh, who would probably not be sharing that sort of view. maybe i'm wrong in terms of you know um uh, what what uh, the kind of priorities uh, are sorry yeah. okay.
2: i i think it's i think it's a really important point i mean the short answer is it's complex um i mean but i think it's also <laughs> more,
4: the, the,
2: i mean the, the times have moved a long way in, in in the last 15 years i mean i mean in the beginning we couldn't even be called a partner we were a contact country because um, um, of those concerns i mean that we've moved a long way from that Um, In the beginning, it was also the more maritime oriented allies, I mean, the the US, Dutch, Canadians, Brits that were keen on this. Um, 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 That's much broader now. Um, And I think that partly is because the views of of China have changed and the views of how China is relevant for Indo-Pacific security have changed. in a sense, it's not about, it used to be more concerned about NATO going to the Indo-Pacific, but the Indo-Pacific is coming to NATO in many ways in that regard. And I think that that has changed the, the debates. I mean, France France has its own views on, on, on this, which are a bit different anyway. But when, um, these days, a lot of the, the China concerns is most, most acute actually in, in Eastern European ca- countries. If you look at Lithuania and, 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 and it's the, 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 the beating that they took um, um, over Taiwan. If you look at, I mean, the Czech Republic was in a similar position. So I think that um, the framing of the challenge through authoritarianism and as well as the practical cooperation that you see between Russia and China have kind of like to some extent eroded the zero-sum approach of of, of if, if you focus on one, you shouldn't focus on the other. I think that the, the terms of the debate have shifted there, which I think have eased a lot of the opposition, both on or certainly in in some areas of engaging this through the NATO format. Again, partly also because it's not necessarily about NATO doing something, but using NATO as a means for exchange. Um, And and I think that there, um, Australia does have an important role because we're not the Americans. Um, um, I think just by virtue of us providing an independent view on what's happening in the region, that's not the US view. Um, that's something where we can have a lot of influence in particular, as it exactly in those small countries that can't afford really to have, to build up their own national expertise on this region.
0: Similar question to Dr. Bertie. Um, so NATO allies differing in their level of ambition as to uh, the involvement or looking into the Indo-PAC.
1: Sure. Um, so, as a as a general comment, I would say that uh, I think it's important to to start by reminding ourselves that NATO, especially as it has been, especially in its more expanded in its in its more expanded and recent format, is an alliance right now of 30, soon to be 32 countries, with different geographies, different nationals of national interests, a large strategic convergence, of course, which is what makes the alliance so solid, and a convergence of values. But the notion that different allies have different prioritizations when it comes to security threats and challenges—that's just something that NATO has worked with, I would say, from day one. So in that sense, it's not new per se. But uh, but you're you're right in in mentioning that, of course, different different allies have different presence, interest, outlook towards the Indo-Pacific region, that's absolutely clear. Uh, yet, I think we have a of, of very clear consensus in terms of how the alliance today, I don't know in 10 years, things change, but how the alliance today is framing its strategic environment and that is through the lens of strategic competition, that is by identifying Russia as a direct threat, so that's very clear. Um, and that's also inevitable because we have uh, we haven't talked about ukraine of course yet uh, in this conversation but for us it's uh, i cannot emphasize i am not i'm stating the obvious but let me state it anyways i cannot emphasize the devastating profound consequences of having a full-fledged war in europe Uh, violating the basic principles of international law, bringing us back to the darkest times of European history, uh, putting into question the European security order, hindering the rules-based international order, creating global disruptions. I'm just saying this because I, I would say there is no question from any of the allies that, uh, that this is has to be our first priority. We are in the midst of the gravest security crisis since the end of World War II. I would say this is the toughest security environment we've had as an alliance since the end of the Cold War, for sure. So that is, that is, that is all true. At the same time, we don't have the luxury to uh, focus only on one issue, to focus only on one threat or to not see the connections. And that's where I think allies are. Uh, They have not defined, they have been clear in the strategic concept of talking about China as posing strategic challenges. We're talking about challenges. Uh, They are not defining China as a military adversary. That's not the language in the concept, but they are recognizing that there's coercive behavior that has an impact on our security. And of course, uh, since the beginning of this brutal war in Ukraine, we have, but even actually before the beginning of the war in Ukraine, we have seen examples of uh, Russia-China cooperation that has, of course, also raised concerns. We have seen Pretty problematic statements from our point of view uh, in the weeks preceding the war uh, from Russia and China about NATO and about uh, de facto uh, putting a veto on countries' right to, to choose to freely choose their own alliances. That's not something we stand for. So it all comes together, and I, I think it's clear where where the alliance is at the moment. Uh, and I think that's absolutely realistic and based on our security environment. So even though, yes, there are different nuances, I think you have pretty strong consensus through this document in saying we cannot afford to ignore this, we cannot afford not to have this discussion um, in NATO, and we cannot afford not to think about what's the transatlantic Consensus on this question. It is essential for our, for the future of our of our alliance for the transatlantic bond as such. So I think we are able to navigate this complexity, uh, keeping the priority that of course we are right now in a watershed moment for European security. So we have to keep uh, to keep our utmost attention uh, on um, on strengthening our deterrence and defense and on supporting Ukraine in its right to self defense. I would I would leave it at that.
0: Maybe final question then for Ms. Spencer here. Um, You've been with DFAT since February, so I can't ask you how has February changed uh, DFAT's perspective, but obviously given your uh, work uh, in the government and on issues of international security, how has to to turn that sort of question around, how has uh, the invasion of Ukraine changed the assessments for Australia in terms of the way that it looks at europe the way that it looks at nato
3: look i think i'm um, speaking really frankly at the foreign ministers meeting particularly in april but also the leader summit we were surprised that ap4 were involved and were invited our view was that you know we'd almost take a back seat for a little while but you know with the invasion of ukraine that nato had a lot more important and pressing issues and that they would be less concerned with the indo-pacific um, and that we would, you know, be waiting for our engagement to increase. And, and so we were really quite surprised at the ongoing interest in the Indo-Pacific and in collaborating with the AP4 um, and in seeking our views and our understanding and our perspectives on issues. Um, Dr Birdie may correct me. I think I've been told that there's um, a saying around NATO headquarters around Russia being the storm and China being climate change, um, and that they are sort of, there is a view within NATO of that long-term perspective. So I think we were um, quite grateful that there was that continued focus on the Indo-Pacific, very, very much of the view that, um, you know, the devastating circumstances in Ukraine and that the focus needs to be there. But that there is um, a perspective we can share on that, and on particularly around issues around cyber, around disinformation, and how that has played out through the Ukraine invasion. There is a different perspective that we can provide, and, and particularly with the, the kind of um, uh, emphasizing of Russian narratives by others in our region, there's a perspective that we can share, and there is value that we can add to that. And also for us, there's a lot that we can learn from the experiences. Um, and, and the work that we've done and the support that we've provided to Ukraine as a non-NATO member has been um, so, um, you know, it's been so important for us as a country to be able to do that. And I think that has shown, again, the global connectedness and the interconnectedness of every security threat. You know, it's not something that's limited to Ukraine, limited to Europe. It affects everybody globally and there's not one issue that we deal with in international security that doesn't. Um, And so those partnerships become more and more important.
0: As we see every day certainly in terms of the prices of commodities Mm -hmm. whether they're soft or or, uh, the traditional sort of hydrocarbons to to obviously the way that this reverberates then into issues of real human security Mm -hmm. and all the rest. Um, That's um, absolutely uh, phenomenal insights from from all uh, three of of the panelists so far. uh, We have about 15 or so minutes uh, um, to uh, open up for Q&A with the audience uh, in the room. So if we could uh, start from over here, Uh, we have Major Rogers.
5: (laughs) Good evening. Thank you to the panel for your time, um, and uh, I appreciate you making time this evening. And I think in one case, still probably morning. Um, so, as the spe- various speakers addressed, um, NATO is a successful, the most successful example of a deterrence alliance, which inherently has a very strong military component. Um, it later extended into other aspects of security, as y'all also noted. I'm thinking of the NATO Stability Policing Center of Excellence, which literally occupies the same facility as uh, the EU's um, Gen 4, uh, Gender Marine Force. Um, PESCO notwithstanding, the EU generally has much weaker, I think I'm safe in saying the EU has much weaker forms of cooperation. And coincidentally or not, I struggled with forms of security cooperation that weren't purely about military things, at Atlanta. Sophia, the, re- the refugee operations in the Mediterranean. As we enter the minilateral era, um, does that history offer lessons for Australia? Um, does NATO's history mean encourage the idea of an AUKUS Center of Maritime Law Enforcement Excellence and that occasionally Canadians and Norwegians visit? Or are these just all reflective of broader trends?
3: Look, I, I would say more reflective of broader trends um, and, you know, AUKUS is a very different grouping and a much more, you know, it's, it, it's a technical capability grouping rather than an alliance in the way that NATO is. Um, I think, it, again, it goes to that point of global connectedness and how you best do that and where you find like-minded and, and that can be very different for each country. And so, hence the kind of focus on, on mini-laterals to a degree. But there is a growing recognition that, as we said before, n- nothing operates alone. Everything interacts across the globe, however small. So we've got to find ways to work um, and to manage opposition and disinformation to alliances that work to support the rules-based order and, and greater security collaboration. But I've passed other panel members.
2: I might, I might jump in here. I mean, I, I do think that I'm not sure that it would say that the EU is weaker on cooperation. It's just, I mean, um it focuses on different areas and it has, it has significant strengths that NATO doesn't have and expertise I mine mean, in particular, it has money um, um um to spend, which which NATO doesn't really in quite the same way. Um, so I think that it's not an one or the other, it's horses for courses. And I think for, for Australia, the EU matters more on certain areas. I mean, if you look at the South Pacific, for example, I mean, the EU is really heavily engaged with its aid program and, and, and capacity building and so on and, and in a way that NATO doesn't, couldn't and wouldn't want to. Um, so I think that just as we've, we do see much greater collaboration in exchange now between the EU and NATO. And I think to some extent that competitive has kind of dropped away a bit in that relationship. Um, but I think likewise, as that happened, the, the, the closer cooperation with NATO, Australia and NATO on security, I think is also mirrored in some ways on closer cooperation with the EU. And it's obviously different fields and so on. But I think that greater European interest in Indo-Pacific developments is not just something that shows up in, 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 in NATO, it also shows up in the political security committee in the EU, for example, and Australia is engaging there, it's just focused on, on, on different areas. So I think that just as NATO and EU are probably more complementary now than competitive, than the, at least than they used to be a few years ago, I think the same di- dynamic is also kind of like replicated in the way that
6: both organizations are increasingly important for us
5: I knew, I, no, I don't think I, I don't think it's my place to give an
1: advice on uh, Australian foreign policy. so I'd rather listen than, than contribute on this one.
0: Yield the floor, uh, that's good. And both NATO and, and the EU obviously published uh, uh, key strategic documents with the same acronyms uh, this year. And uh, I've heard that they are talking much more than they ever have before. So strategic concept for one, the strategic con- compass for the other, and uh, a lot of ambition for sure for from the EU to become a more uh, um, capable uh, security and, and military actor and player over there.
4: Uh, this is better sorry yeah. okay
0: and if we can keep it a question rather than a comment
1: please
4: yeah, yeah. I, I think i need to put a framework out okay. otherwise uh, all right so so uh, uh, uh like practically let me go to the question what is the relevance considering that actually um sorry jumping one one sub sub sort of thing that I forgot to mention, i become philosopher observing human or Western bias. So we are in the age of biggest Western propaganda, okay? I don't trust anything I, I, I read in, in the media or, or, or most of the things because I can think for myself. Now, what is the relevance for, for Australia, for in NATO, when we are actually a part of Asia and now we are Asian century to remind you 100 years, uh, so we should be more independent and think about neighbors first, rather than trying to be barking dog. Because usually the dogs get poisoned first when, when there's a you know fight between the neighbors. So we should be really thinking we are isolated island. And coming from IT and uh, I understand really well artificial intelligence, we okay. see now uh, the, the dangers of Optus and Medibank. Right. That's much I bigger think, danger. Yeah. So we, let's we let's focus yeah. on what is the relevance of NATO. Yeah.
0: Okay. So where should the focus lie? Um, is there a peril of ignoring the the backyard? I don't. Well, uh,
3: my position is that we're not ignoring the backyard. We have a range of relationships with partners, and our regional partners are some of the most important that we have. Um, but as we've talked about all evening, the threats are global, and so we need to look to all like-minded. Um, but it's definitely not at the detriment of our region. And, you know, looking at the government and the work that our foreign minister has been doing recently, the Pacific and Southeast Asia are prime um, in terms of our relationships and the work that we do. I
0: think that's broadly the consensus. Do we have a question over there?
7: I had a, I had a question for Dr Birdie. Um, so in government, obviously things move pretty slowly. I can only imagine how thing how slowly things might move in a big beast like NATO. Um, how, how long did it take to develop the strategic concept, and how far into that process did the Ukraine crisis kind of come hit and how much that kind of changed the initial assumptions you were working towards? Sure.
1: Um, so the, the short question, the, that's a really good question. And I would say that, uh, the the process of drafting uh, and pre-negotiations and, and start to finish took from September to June, so roughly so roughly nine months, I would say. In reality, I would say that some of the thinking, some of the strategic thinking about the shifts in the security environment and how they affect the Alliance have been ongoing for at least the prior couple of years. Um, After the London summit in 2019, allies asked the secretary general to think about how to strengthen NATO politically. That became an initiative that we call NATO 2030. And it it was very practical. It was focused on what do we need to adapt to make sure the alliance alliance is future-proof, but inevitably in order to think about how to future-proof something, you have to think about how is the environment changing. So I think some of the discussions on strategic competition, on resilience, really uh, predated the the concept in a way. So we had been conceptually thinking about it for a couple of years. Uh, Then on the second part, I have to say, this is a question that we we got a lot and meaning how much did did the analysis change after the war in Ukraine? And I want to, to be completely honest, not, it's a change in tone, it's a change in urgency. It's a recognition of the fact that we are in a really in the darkest time for, uh, for European for European history, uh, security in, in many years. So there is a change in tone. But in terms of the pre-February draft of the concept that we had on the table. It didn't describe the word in a substantially different way. It still said we're going to be more, you know, word that is more competitive, more contested. Strategic competition was already there. Um, perhaps the I would say, to be honest, the language on Russia would probably be a would be a, I wouldn't have been as direct. But the analysis was that we had a largely destabilizing actor in the Euro-Atlantic area. Um, That's something that we really came to terms with after the illegal annexation of Crimea in 2014. Some say, well, you could have gotten to, you could have come to terms with that after Georgia in 2008, or even after uh, President Putin went to the Munich Security Conference in 2007, basically laid out his vision for a completely different uh, security architecture, uh, rejecting, uh, rejecting the post Cold War, if you wish, um, uh, arrangements. But nevertheless, I would say since 2014, there's been a continuous under- shift in understanding of uh, the world that has led to the most significant military adaptation of the alliance uh, for decades. So in that sense, yes, the war was uh, is atrocious, is a uh, complete deterioration of the security environment. But if I look two levels above and I look at the mega trends it does it, it exacerbates them it doesn't change them so in other words uh, we adjusted the tone but the overall assessment was fairly similar i'm afraid
0: there was a question oh thanks
6: thanks very much for the panel which has been incredibly interesting and is this on it's on it's
0: on okay okay
6: thanks Uh, Thank you so much. I just have a practical question. Um, I should introduce myself. I'm Carolyn Cartier. I teach both global governance and contemporary China at UTS, so I see the intersections of these issues and their um, uh, increasing significance. So I just have a practical question for um, the colleagues who work in Australian government, and that is, what about the structure of government in the way that it may be disposed or indisposed to rising to or being interested in or becoming more involved in not the NATO mandate so much, but the real world challenges that have come into the Asia Pacific and which historically NATO has been concerned with. We have these kind of new intersecting geographies that don't map on to the old transatlantic order neatly anymore. And so, what is it? And perhaps I'm not sure if this is even the right question because I don't work in Australian government. But what in Australian government, um, perhaps, structures or or opens up to the possibilities of this kind of engagement that we first see, sort of, if I understand correctly, on the sidelines in Spain. Is is Australian government kind of predisposed to this, or there structures of the bureaucracy, and its its um, existing Um, kind of mandates and silos that, silos particularly, that in the Australian bureaucratic
3: system tend to limit the potential of crossing over. Thank you. Interesting question. And and I might not be the best placed. um, And I might press to the professor as well. Look, my view is that we, there aren't any structural barriers. as we've dealt more and more with these kind of cross-cutting security issues, um, we've been open to talking to a whole range of different partners. I think some of it are cultural aspects, which we have (laughs) across the board. So, you know, I think previously that view of NATO had been a defense and military view and that had been that kind of defense relationship. Um, I guess DFAT's involvement has been newer as it's gone into more emerging security issues and then being able to bring in others from across government as well. So I don't think there's structural barriers, but it's that kind of ongoing cultural piece of how you bring people together and avoid those silos. Um, But I think that goes more to, you know, I think that's something we see across the board with cross-cutting security issues and something we've had to deal with across government rather than necessarily something specific to NATO. Um, but Professor, did you have?
2: No, look. I, I think it's an interesting question to think about. I mean, I do think that certainly in the early days of the partnership, there were still undertones of, and like, um, you know, the the old Europe versus Asia focused debate. And 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 is the, is this kind of like going back to the fifties and sixties, or um, and in terms of us focusing on our our, our our northern hemisphere allies? I think that's dropped away um, just as. I think I think people have realized that it's not, and and that the issues are ultimately the issues that we care about that that, that are discussed in the in the relationship. Um, I do think that there is a and and this there is an issue about. I mean, is this a geographic? Do you look at this through a geographic lens or a functional lens, and I think that the system is struggling with that. Um, so I mean, for a while, NATO was I think in the Eastern European section in in DFAT. I mean that that wasn't really quite where it belonged. Um, <laughs> And I think that, I mean, having it in international security, I do think that we're probably missing a bit of an opportunity to think about how much do we engage kind of like a European countries in Brussels as opposed to in their capitals. And so so I think that that's something that that um, I'm not sure that the balance is right there. And likewise, I think certainly in defense, again, it's, it's in the international policy area, but in many ways it's actually more relevant for the functional area. So it's kind of... Um, but but that's just the norm. That's just a fact of life of complex organisations. I think that's not really specific to NATO, and I think that to some extent, I think we should also not underestimate the fact that it's now become almost a habit for Australian prime ministers to go to to, to summits, um, and I think that that like in itself like raises 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 prominence, but also ha- like helps to focus and integrate policy at a national level in a way that probably wouldn't happen and probably didn't happen when, when, when it was still more at the official level and maybe maybe ministerial level. And I think that, that that ability for prime ministers to come is not just because of the level at which you can engage a valuable thing, but I think also in, 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 in that sense of, of consolidating, if you like, national views on, 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 on what can be achieved in, in,
7: in that relationship.
0: That's great. And uh, if we have time for one final question from the audience over there.
7: Oh, thank you the panelists for the time tonight. Uh, my question in short is what do you think of the real, real um, prospects of a new Cold War? Since the, um, since the Warsaw Pact was dissolved in 1991 and there was the, the Russia coming to the West and the West acceptance of Russia as a new partner, but for the initial 10, 15 years. And now, like there's all of a sudden this military conflict, at least and now it's still in a regional scale between Russia and Ukraine. And what's the prospect of a new... I don't think, I honestly do not think there'll be direct military conflict between Russia and any NATO countries because that's going to start at World War III, for sure. Because as um, Dr. Froning has said, NATO is such a strong... Um, alliance of deterrence and each side has strong nuclear capabilities so what do you guys think of the prospects of a new cold war on a global scale considering we're talking about the linking of China and this being the you know the strong strategic alliance of China and Russia so
0: just an easy essay type question to wrap our discussion tonight
1: Sure. I can say, I can be really quick. Well, it's not a question you can answer quickly, but let me start with one clear, one point that I want to make. It's quite important. It's important to me. Uh, Words matter. So I would say there's not a conflict in Europe right now. There is a war of aggression by one country, the Russian Federation that has uh, invaded a sovereign country and is now involved in a brutal war uh, with devastating consequences for the country's civilian population with documented cases that can only be described as atrocities so let's just be clear there's not all of a sudden a conflict between two countries there is one country that has invaded another country and is now and is now attacking it i wouldn't say this is all of out of the blue i wouldn't say this is Of course, the war, the escalation is something uh, that we haven't seen, uh, that we haven't seen in European in European soil for a while. But the behavior, and that's what I go back to. This is not something we have seen since uh, since that 2007 speech. But of course, even more since the illegal annexation of Crimea, we have seen the Russian Federation playing an incredibly destabilizing role. We have seen it doing so uh, with provocative military exercises. We've seen them doing so through interference in democratic elections, uh, disinformation, cyber attacks, uh occupation of of uh, sovereign countries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this is not, this has been the trend. And I think it's important that we remember it because of course, after the end of the Cold War, NATO extended um, cooperation with Russia, it offered to Russia uh, a level of tailored uh, engagement and partnership that has not been offered to anyone else. So we really really opened that door. Uh, But of course, you have to be two to tango. So after the after after the legal annexation of Crimea, we had to put a stop to business as usual. You don't do business as usual to a country with a country that invades uh, its uh, sovereign neighbor for no reason. Uh, you just simply can't. And of course, now the situation is. Uh, is your co- absolutely correct? We are in the worst relationship with the Russian Federation since the end of the Cold War. That's just a fact. Uh, that's not where we want to be. And if you read uh, everything uh, we are saying, is that we believe in a European security order based on international law, based on sovereignty, based on the right of each country to freely choose its alliances and conduct its foreign policies. These, by the way, are also principles that Russia had agreed to. Uh, but of course, it's now violating. So the point is, uh, the point is that the alliance that the alliance is interested in stability and in, in, in unpredictability uh, in, in the Euro-Atlantic area. A change in the relationship with Russia can only occur if Russia changes its behavior, um, stops this absurd and brutal war, and returns to compliance with international law. So that's where we are. Uh, if to me, that's not the parallel with the Cold War is. I I I don't know how helpful it is let me be honest I think it, it it mirrors the the situation was quite different then first of all you have first of all the notion of uh, um you have a much more complex security environment now interlinkages as we as we've mentioned there is a strategic competition we're talking about uh, China and Russia so I I don't I'm not sure it's a good parallel but uh but I would say if you ask to the if you ask Ukrainians, they would say, well, actually, there is no a cold war. There is a brutal war of aggression going on every day in our country. So perhaps step one is to put a stop to it and then we can and then we can take it from there. I think that's that's that would be my my reaction.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Berti. We are aware of your uh, timetabling and scheduling constraints. So uh, we thank you for uh, your excellent uh, participation today and, and insights, and we'll let you proceed with your day over in Riga. So we'll just uh, leave it for some final remarks from uh, from Professor Frilling and from Ms. Spencer. Uh, but uh, for you, uh, we, we say goodbye. We will still stay on uh, online for another three minutes. Thank you again. Thank you very much. New Cold War?
6: Um, Yeah, no, it's It's a good question. I mean, um, I mean, I agree with Benedetta
2: that probably you you don't want to draw too many parallels to the old Cold War. But I think it's it's worth reminding that NATO, I mean, as in the organization, um, was formed exactly to keep the war cold rather than have a hot war um, in the context of the Korean War. I mean, back in 49, you largely just had the treaty and, and NATO as an organization really arose out of a realization that um, just wishing for war not to go hot is not enough. You actually need to prepare and work for it to, to remain cold. And I think that that's where, where NATO is moving back towards. And I think that coming back to my earlier theme, I mean, I think that there's some lessons there from us because we never in the even in the cold war part time period with the I mean, we've all forgotten about CETO, Let's face it. I mean, that was kind of like the, the, our one attempt at at, at at trying to do something similar, but we've never really relied on our alliances to keep to keep a war a war from going hot rather than remaining cold. And so, I think that um, what we're seeing now in NATO is 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 solutions that are obviously kind of like reflecting the European transatlantic geographic, political kind of. Like, circumstances but the problems of how do you work as allies to make sure that wars remain cold rather than going hot um, are the same that I think we're increasingly facing and I think that if you look at what's happening in the US-Japan and the US-Korean alliance and in the US-Australia alliance over the last 10 years or so you see us inching towards grappling with similar issues that NATO was originally set up to do both in terms of practical cooperations and even more importantly in kind of like the, that poll pol- political military kind of like um, 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 peace um, um, that that is so essential if you want to like work as allies and 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 for deterrence.
0: Great, thank you. And we save the best for last.
3: Well <laughs> I was just gonna say I don't think I can add much more to what the experts have said. So happy to leave it there.
0: Happy to to try to to make sure that we leave uh, uh, all the wars cold rather than uh, escalating and becoming hot. Well, uh, this brings us to the the very end of our uh, scheduled time today. Thank you all for uh, being.